I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Shelly. She's the founder of Woman Warriors and an advocate for Indigenous women's health. Let's talk about it. All right. Here we go. We're live. We're doing it. Um, uh, Shelly, uh, this is, I'm excited to sit down and talk to you. Um, uh, we have been, so it's, it's been interesting. We, we had a conversation, um, it must've been a couple of months now, a couple of months ago, um, with, uh, with somebody about, um, Dr. Ingrid Waldron about the topic of, uh, environmental racism and that conversation sort of. Uh, branched off into several other conversations that surround the 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 topic of um, of uh, particular groups who who are facing like health inequities, um, and in in particular talking about like um, uh, particular minorities or or like typically oppressed groups. Um, and it's been a, it's been a whirlwind for the three of us to learn all of this. Um, and we're continuing to try to learn as much of this as we possibly can. And so today we're talking to you, um, Shelly, how do you pronounce your, your last name, Shelly? It's Weirt. Weirt. Okay. Shelly Weirt. Uh, you are a Métis woman, uh, mom to three young girls, uh, and you're also the founder of Women Warriors. I guess let's start with what, it, what is Women Warriors? So uh, first off, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And then second off, I just want to do a land acknowledgement because, you know, that should be part of protocol for any, any Canadian that is going to speak in public. And um, I'm, I'm currently on Treaty 6 territory, so I just would like to recognize that. Right now I live in Lloydminster, Alberta. Um, and I did see that I, I did listen to your podcast with Dr. Ingrid Waldron, and that was amazing. And so she talked a lot about the social determinants of health. Yeah. And so mm. Women Warriors initially started uh, because I wanted to do a free physical activity program focused on Indigenous women. So the way that it started was back in 2015, my dad, who is Métis, was diagnosed with insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. And so I decided to support him on his health journey by running a half marathon for team diabetes. And so during that time, I really became familiar with statistics of Indigenous people and type 2 diabetes. And they, Indigenous women have four times the rate of type 2 diabetes as non-Indigenous women. Well, so really? Four times? Four times the rate. Holy shit. So I, I was thinking to myself, I really, I was out running and going to the gym and I didn't see very many Indigenous women in these spaces. And I, I asked myself why, and I decided to start my own uh, Indigenous women's physical activity program. It also had a nutrition component and then a mind-body-spirit component, which is a traditional talking circle where you talk about your health. And so at first, the focus was solely on like health promotion and physical activity. Mm -hmm. And then I started to get to listening to Indigenous women's health stories. And I realized that it was the social determinants of health that were really impacting their ability to get healthy. So when you Ooh. look at what social determinants of health, we're looking at education, income, poverty, uh, food security, so the kinds of food that they have access to, the quality of food that they have access to. So I, I didn't want to focus solely on physical activity programming anymore. I wanted to expand off into Indigenous women's health stories so that other people could hear what I was hearing about Indigenous mm. women's health, which is 
don't blame us for our, our poor health outcomes or the health disparities that we have. It has to do with the social determinants of health. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this idea of social determinants of health is something that uh, obviously through our conversation with, with Ingrid, like, like we were like, my, like, like minds kind of blown, especially after watching, watching the documentary that, uh, of the, the same name of the book that she wrote. Um, it's something that like, that is, it's, I, I don't, I, I don't think it's something that, that most people typically think about when they think about like health, right? When we think about yeah. health, it's, I think, so, I think, if, I think there's a lot in, there's a lot in, I mean, because when we think of health, we think of science and then when we think of science, we think of kind of like facts and numbers and genetics and all that and, stuff. And, and the and, and anatomy and the, yeah, bo- like and we the sort body of, is a machine. And, and it can be, and it can be, it can be then like you said, like our conversation with, with Ingrid was like, you know, all these introducing all these, introducing all these, these social layers on top, uh, on top of, and, 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 I have a question that I want to follow up this with, but like all these layers on top, all these social layers that um, that that sort of steer populations in certain directions because of because of of the impacts that those social things have. I'm curious is when you when you started diving into that research, and for you know you recognize what was it was it four times more likely for for indigenous women to have diabetes without this, the statistic type two diabetes, type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. When you were diet, when you dove into that and you, and you found that statistic, was there, was there anything that was there things that came up that were like, here are some things that are very socially driven and here are any, here are things that are, are genetically driven. Like, was there, was, was there, was there, are there things in both camps that you came across or was it, was it like heavily, was it heavily uh, weighted on, like on social determination? Uh, So it's heavily weighted on social determinants of health. And, um, you know, the overarching factor is colonization. Colonization Mm. as a social determinant of health. And when I started doing my digital stories that I have on my website, I was surprised because I just wanted to talk about Indigenous healing practices And then all of the ladies that participated in my research wanted to talk about residential school and the legacy of residential school. Mm. So when we talk about colonization and we talk about like the social determinants of health, what is that legacy and how is it still impacting them in the here and now? Are you talking about like intergenerational trauma Trauma. when you say it? Yes. So Mm. that's what I'm talking about is intergenerational trauma or Dr. Duran, who is American psychologist, he's a Native American psychologist in the States, calls it the soul wound. So colonization as not only a um, as a physical ailment, you know, from the social determinants of health, but also as a spiritual wounding. Mm. And that is definitely what I found as I was working through these stories. In in terms of like um like I, I understand intergenerational trauma to be more of a a uh, like a psychological effect that uh, spans multiple generations. Um, but I I don't want to trivialize this with this with this analogy. But I kind of think of like is there in addition to like the psychological trauma that somebody can experience um, from intergenerational trauma? Is there this also like just kind of like stacking up of like getting behind from generation to generation. So like if you were uh, oppressed, if your, your people were oppressed um, generations ago and you never had the opportunity then to get ahead, then all of a sudden there's this cycle of, of, you know, just constantly being at a disadvantage and, and the the trivializing analogy that I was going to use is kind of like thinking of like a board game, like monopoly, for example, like if, if somebody else on uh, that's competing against you is collecting more and more spaces on the board and you keep going around in circles and keep having to pay them out as you cross their spaces, you're, you get more and more in debt in this game. And then all of a sudden it becomes harder and harder for you to break that, um, that, that flow of, Mm-hmm. You know, because you're constantly it, landing on other and on right, other yeah. people's shit and having to pay so, them money. <laughs> I just, you know, I have a hard time talking about it in that in that framework because that's a deficit based narrative about Indigenous people. And uh, you know, I work in the field of Indigenous health because I want to tell strength based stories about Indigenous okay. women. 
And so these kinds of stories are about the way that we've been resilient and that we've connected to our land, language, culture, and our own kinds of ceremonial healing, as opposed to, um, you know, going through these cycles of trauma over and over again and it being repeated. But there is um, proof that, you know, trauma is found in our bodies and epigenetics. And so you can switch on or switch off, you know, some of the, de- the diseases that we have based on the trauma that we've been through. And so, you know, the beautiful thing ab- about the digital stories that I did is that these women talk about the ways that they pulled themselves out of these cycles and the mm-hmm. strength-based stories that they have through, you know, doing traditional activities like um, a- an annual canoe trip with uh, the Tolicho um, called Trails of Our Ancestors, or speaking their traditional language, or, mm. you know, learning about the history of residential school and then teaching it to younger generations so that they can have a better understanding of why this is happening in their communities. Mm. Right. So instead of like focusing on this this negative narrative that is, in fact, true and it, and is the reality, focus more on the positive stories that come out of that to 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 create this more positive narrative as a whole, so that more people, you know, understand yeah, the great accomplishments that are able to be narratives, achieved. Deficit narratives perpetuate stereotypes and prejudice. Mm, right. Right. It, so what, what, when you're saying I've everybody's never thought falling of behind, yeah, yeah, right. Really, I've never what, thought of it that way. And and yeah, this is you know just one thing I've learned are, already. But both are true, right? I mean, like we, I, like there we has, can't we can't really. Um, like both sides, like both sides need to be need to be present. There's got to yeah. be resilience. There's got to be resilience to pull out of, but also on the other side, there's got to like there has to be a breaking down of the systems that were that are that are that are oppressing in the fr- in the first place. Right? I mean, of they course, both have so we to... need to recognize the harmful effects of colonization mm-hmm. in all of its forms. You know, in- taking away the land, going to residential school, taking away the the cultures and traditions, all of that. Mm-hmm. So this this idea of def, deficit based um, storytelling, it, what like what is the what's the other side of of that called? Like, what do you refer to? Um, I've, this is the first time I've heard the the term like deficit based storytelling or deficit based yeah, facts. So what what's what do we what do we call the 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 way that that you find more more effective to look at it? Like what what do you what do you call that? Well, so you just call it strength based strength-based narratives but you also call it Mm -hmm. like resiliency Mm -hmm, indigenous mm -hmm. women are incredibly resilient despite Mm -hmm. all of the factors that have tried to tear them down Mm -hmm. so so what are what are some of like what are some of the what are some of like the the social based things that have like been that have been like perpetuated over time that have that not to go i guess this does kind of go back to this like deficit-based idea but but to understand, but to understand like what the social, like how, how health becomes socially determined, what are some of the things that have, that have like really contributed heavily to the socially determined outcomes, like health outcomes that indigenous women have faced? Well, I mean, there's so many, but I'll just go over a few of the biggies right now. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the Indian Act, you know, that kind of colonial legislation led to, um, indigenous women, when they married a non-indigenous man, they were kicked out of their communities and they lost their status. Mm. So they were basically dislocated from their land. And a lot of indigenous people just putting them on reserves is a dislocation from mm. their land. And our land is mm. a source of our spirituality and ceremony. So, you know, when mm-hmm. you're forcing people out of their communities and away from their interconnected social supports, what does that do to your health? What does that do to your mental health to Mm -hmm. not be able to go to your land, to speak your language, to see your family and to practice your ceremony? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we were talking with um, um, uh, uh, Tari uh, last Mm -hmm. uh, week or two ago, um, a big thing that we talked about um, in terms of um, in terms of our conversation was, was housing and, um, and, and, and the concept of a home and like, comfort and, and, and in relation to what you're saying and like in your, la- like to be on your land. And I mean, you've, we've, we've probably all had the experience of, you know, we have the place that we are most comfortable when we go to bed at night and we sleep the best there. And, mm-hmm. 
then all of a sudden you put yourself in another and you, you put yourself in another space and you don't sleep as well. And, and then, I mean, then now scale that up to being completely displaced. Like way, way, way up. You know, yeah, yeah, scale to, that way from, up. To, to being completely displaced. And, you know, we, see, we, we obviously see it here in Nova Scotia in, in indigenous communities and, um, and like really notably right on the peninsula with Africville uh, was a black community that was like completely displaced from, mm-hmm. from, from Halifax and, and relocated outside of uh, Cole Harbor in Preston. Um, like just, and, and, and that really, and, and so I guess my, my example is kind of like on the individual level, but then in this, in the reality of, of, of indigenous people is on a mass, like a mass scale community level where the entire community and the fabric of the community is disrupted. And then, and that's where I sort of, where, where, where I start to connect with the um, intergenerational trauma um, because of, because of how, when an entire community, an entire population is disrupted in such a massive way, how that then starts to recycle into, into the next generation that comes after. Mm. One thing that I'm uh, really curious about is how, well, I I guess I'll I'll start, I'll start with this. Shelly, what, what was your, what was your life before your, your father was diagnosed with, with diabetes and before you went on this run and before you like sort of made that decision to follow this as a, as a, a path of study and, and to start, uh, to start women warriors. Um, what, what was your life? What was your life before yeah, that? So I always like to tell everyone, I'm really proud to be a mom. I'm a mom of three girls. And so, you know, I was at home, I had three babies in five years. And Whoa. so, yeah. So a lot of babies. it was, it was a really hard time, but it's definitely, um, the most fulfilling role I've ever had. And so mm. I, you know, part of my journey has been really understanding um, being a mother and what that means and the legacy that you want to leave. And, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my children. And so in order to be able to do Women Warriors, to do the health promotions program, I really had to understand what it meant to be a mother mm-hmm. and to really understand what these women were going through, trying to break an intergenerational, um, you know, legacy of trauma and then, you know, be better for their kids. You know, that's what we ultimately want. Don't we all want to be amazing parents that can give the very best to our kids? And so, you know, an important part of my journey is just realizing the love and the power of motherhood. Mm. Mm. So in in then transitioning into the work that you do now, um, so like, you know, this this concept of storytelling and how how storytelling can play such a vital role in terms of in terms of the way we see the world, in terms of the way that people feel heard, in terms of the way that we can like cultivate better care, um, that's something that we've come to to learn very deeply through doing this podcast. You know, it started off as just us dicking around and and making each other laugh and and hearing a few stories, but then we started to realize like, whoa, there's something much greater going on here. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of storytelling from your perspective and also, also like the, the cultural importance of storytelling from, from an indigenous standpoint? Yeah. So, um, storytelling for indigenous communities has, has great power and has been a tool of transferring knowledge for millennia. And, um, there's two types of stories or indigenous epistemologies so the first story kind of has like a, a, a mythical element to it. And it's stories that are about creation and teaching stories. Mm. And then the second uh, kind of storytelling is personal narratives. And they talk about, you know, place, happenings, experience, you know, their personal narratives and personal stories. And so some of the stories um, are sacred stories and they're passed down through family lines. So they're not for everybody to hear and for everyone to know. Oh. And then there is, for example, my dad. You know, he's an amazing storyteller. And he never tells me what to do. uh, Because I wouldn't take well to that anyway. But he always tells me a life lesson through a story or the things that he went through in order for me to extract the lesson that I need out of it myself. 
That's so amazing. I so never thought of that. So a lot of the time, <laughs> if you go to an elder in our communities and you, and you directly ask them, well, what do you think I should do about this? You better sit down and prepare yourself for a good long story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, in Indigenous communities and Indigenous elders, they won't ever tell you what to do. That's not their place. Um, but they will share their personal life wisdom with you. Mm. I mean, they, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's, uh, it's sort of, it very much is in, in line with, with how, with not, not how I grew up, but how I, in hindsight, how I, how I, what I wish had been more a part of my upbringing, not necessarily in my family, but more like broadly, socially, school wise, like there is a, there's always like a very, this is what you do and this is how you do it. And, mm-hmm. and I felt like, and I think particularly Brian with you and I, like you and I and Dennis, Dennis, Brian, Dennis is Brian's twin, twin brother, Shelly. Um, we were very much kind of like cut from the same cloth when it came to like figuring stuff out and problem solving and, and sort of extracting stories and, so, and, re- <laughs> and, and rebelling a little bit. And so that, um, that notion of storytelling and not necessarily telling somebody what to do, but, um, but, but extracting the meaning or the lesson to be mm-hmm. gleaned is, uh, that really kind of hits close to home. And also our brains process information in storylines and narratives, you know, like mm-hmm. I could tell you statistics about any kind of, you know, health disparity, but if I put that in a story and you can see real people, Mm-hmm. and their families and their pictures, that's mm. going to form an empathetic connection with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So storytelling uh, forms empathy with the viewer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what's that you, quote? That really famous quote is something like, you know, a million, if a million people die, it's a statistic. If one people, one person dies, it's a tragedy mm. um, because there's a story, there's a, there's a reality, there's a humanity to the individual. Mm-hmm. It, uh, Sorry, Brian. You, I was just going to say, uh, Shelly, you've said two things today that have just totally flipped my perspective on things. One is to not to go back to it, but just to, just to <laughs> state it, the deficit narr- narrative and how the emphasis needs to really be on the the um, the other side of things. I like that has totally just hit me in a really profound way. But mm. the storytelling thing too, it, it it really synthesized the way that I feel about hearing stories because I think of like the stories that I tell about my life. And the stories that I tell about my life oftentimes contain stories that other people are telling me within those stories that have really taught me the lesson that is like <laughs> formulates the reason why that has been such a profound moment in my life. So mm, yeah. um, it's great. Like, I, I don't think I've ever had a, a conversation with somebody where like in such a short amount of time, in like 20 minutes, there's like two um, like massively profound things for me. So but you, you know, what's really funny about that though, Brian, <laughs> is that like it, it's, we we know this like this is something that we deep down we know that and it's 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 within i mean not to like make this about us and what we're doing but it's within the work even outside of the podcast it's within the work that we do and like speaking at medical conferences to to really push home the 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 idea that like this person the the, the patient isn't just some number the patient mm-hmm. is a person with a backstory with like with a rich deep like beautiful story and and there's so much within that story that goes into the care that they need to receive yeah you know for sure and and i i understand the value of storytelling in in that sense but like as like a teaching tool i've never thought of it in that way and like and and i i think that that's why you know like even even telling us that shelly like you're saying you're telling us a story of you and your experience with your dad and, and your dad using that method. So it's like, Ooh. it's really meta, but it's really powerful. I, yeah. I just want to say one more thing about storytelling. You know, it's such a gift and an honor to be able to sit down with someone and let them tell you their, let them be present for them while they tell mm. you their story. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a real gift and it's a sacred space. So mm. to have this podcast to invite all of these guests what you're doing is you're creating a sacred space for people to tell their stories, you know, and that touches their heart. And so Ooh. not only are you touching the heart of, of the guest, but also of the audience. And so then you form that connection and that's why you keep perpetuating all of these, um, 
you know, you get you go to these medical conferences or you get these invitations because you're forming a you're forming an empathetic connection between the audience mm-hmm. and your podcast. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's such a powerful tool to express voices that have been marginalized. You know, when we talk about mm. chronic illness, a lot of these people, maybe they don't have the time or the energy to go talk about their stories, but you're doing it for them. So that's a really sacred gift that they're giving you is to be mm. able to advocate for them. How, do, how does it work, in, like in terms of your work, Shelley, what, what, what does it look like in, for you to, to collect these, these stories? Or is that what you do? Like, like um, how, how, does, how does storytelling work within the work that you're actually yeah, doing? So, you know, my methodology, the way that I conduct research is through Indigenous digital storytelling So what I do is I sit down with Indigenous women, and it's a one-on-one thing. So it's a totally private session that we have. And I ask them to tell me about their health. And so, you know, when I originally began my research project about Indigenous women's health stories, (laughs) I I told you I wanted to collect narratives about healing practices. Mm -hmm. But all roads led to uh, residential school and the legacy of residential school. So I'll just give you one example. I sat down with Maxine and she wanted to um, she wanted to discuss her mother's residential school attendance. And her mother went to residential school only 30 minutes from Lloyd Minster in St. Barnabas. And that's out at Onion Lake Cree Nation. And so when I sit down to do these narratives with indigenous women, I take direction from them. So, you know, we co-create these stories, but they tell me what they want to do. And so part of this process of Indigenous digital storytelling is, you know, taking direction from them and then going with them on this journey. So we actually ended up going out to the residential school site where Maxine's mother attended. Mm -hmm. And um, the person who lives on that land gave us a tour of the residential school site. And uh, it was a really um, humbling experience for me to participate in that. And... um, you know, Maxine said that she received some healing from that, from that experience. And then from that experience, we took pictures. We took pictures at the residential school site. And then we took pictures of her mom at the residential school. And we pieced together a narrative that tells about the intergenerational trauma of residential school mm. and um, how Maxine has healed from that. What has she done to heal? And then we, at the end of the digital story, she wanted to dedicate it to her mom who has since passed. In, in this, in this example, in this example of Maxine and her story, I, I want to, I want to, can you elaborate on, on how, how she brings the experience, her, her mother's experience of, of, of being in the residential school system and how that impacts her life and, and, and impacts her health, um, in a, in a way that is it just, a, I, I feel like there's a lot of people and I'm thinking of like, I'm thinking of, I'm 29 now. I'm thinking of me at 20, 21, 22. And I probably, I, and at that time I was like, like everything had to be a fact. Like if it wasn't a fact, if it wasn't like a number on, on a pa- piece of paper that I could see, like it, it didn't mean much to me. And, and, I, and I'm thinking of me at that age hearing, hearing that and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of me hearing that and going, but she wasn't there. How is it, affect, like how is it affecting her? I'm talking about Maxine. Okay. So- and going, how, how, does that, how does it carry through? And I know that we touched on inter- intergenerational trauma, but I'm, I'm thinking of people out there who just who can't, who hear that and can't grasp how, mm-hmm. how, how the daughter of, of somebody who is in this system, how that, how that impacts, like in a really big way, that person's life. So first, I would really encourage you to go to my website and view Maxine's story because she does a beautiful job of explaining the, the intergenerational effects from her mother's residential school attendance. But I'll just summarize it here for you in a few sentences. So number one, so Maxine is a second generation residential school survivor, right? She, her mother went to, to residential school and her mother never spoke about it. You know, so many of us, so many Indigenous families, there's a lot of secrecy surrounding what happened to them in residential school because it's so painful. 
Nobody mm. wants to bring up their trauma all the time and relive it on a constant basis. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to talk about sexual abuse and beatings, you know, and, and mm-hmm. they also they don't want to live in the past. But by not exposing your truth, which is what was part of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee's entire premise, was for all of these residential school survivors to come out and tell their truths. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't do that, we can't heal. So Maxine was living in secrecy and her mother had never really told her what had happened to her except for one story. So one story was um, Maxine's mother was brought to the residential school when she was four years old. And she was dropped off and the mother, her mother was standing there and told her to go in and she got cleaned up, her hair got cut and she... You know, her mother went to to see her off and and she said, well, I thought I was coming with you. Like, let's go home now. And so, the you know, Maxine's great grandmother had to say, no, you're not coming home. I'm sorry. You're going to stay here. And then not knowing if you're going to see your child for months and months or how they're being treated or who you're leaving them with. And then Maxine said, you know, her mother never wanted to advocate for herself. And so when you're in, in the residential school, uh, it's very oppressive and you can't have a voice. And so another one of my digital storytelling participants, Beatrice, who also attended residential school, said, you know, they took away my language. She, she couldn't speak Cree anymore. But what really happened there is you're taking away someone's voice, someone's ability to advocate for themselves. You're taking away their worldview. Language is culture. You're, you're stripping them of their culture when you take away their language. Um, and then the other thing is Maxine talks about the struggle with raising her own children. She had very little empathy. So what happened at residential school was a lot of, um, the children didn't receive affection. You know, there wasn't any hugs. It wasn't parental love. There was none of that. So they didn't know how to express that with their own children. So Maxine's mom never gave her a hug. You know, there was no words of encouragement. There was no physical affection. So, you know, Maxine, with her own children, really struggled to understand why she had very little empathy for what her children were going through. And it took her a lot of healing work and education in order to understand that and how to course correct herself. Mm-hmm. So those are just some of the examples. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, and, I, and I, thank you for, for, for going into that because it is kind of going back to the storytelling thing. Like, I mean, when it's... When you hear a lot of, I mean, I, and like I said, when I was in my early 20s, now I'm probably the exact opposite. I mean, I, I do enjoy statistics still, I'm a bit of a math person, but, um, <laughs> but, but the, empath- the empathy that surrounds stories and individuals and storytelling and the humanity of stories uh, or humanity of the people that are, that are, that are involved there and have gone through these things, like it really does especially for people who for for people who might not be might not know very much or they're trying to educate themselves and learn more about um different populations and 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 how people have been oppressed and how that can affect their health in this conversation in particular i think that that's really powerful and it really it mm-hmm. really hits home for for listeners when when it's really embedded in a story and you can go you can feel that person i mean i like you saying that even though I thought before I asked the question, I had my head wrapped around it. That provided so much context for me and allowed me to wrap my head around that in a, in a different way than I could just, just five minutes ago. So thank you for that. Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. Shelly, I'm, I'm curious about, um, and maybe, maybe we don't need to stay on Maxine stories. Maybe there's a, there's another example, but if you want to continue on, on, on Maxine, I, I'd love to hear more, but I'm, I'm curious more specifically about the, um, this idea that you mentioned that returning to the place of her, her mother's residential school was part of the healing process, but obviously there was a lot of other work that, um, had to be done and I'm sure is still being done to, um, 
manage that trauma. Um, what are some of the other things that uh, these these people are are going through or, or or doing, working on to try to to manage their their health? Um, you know, I think such an important factor to health is really reclaiming tradition, language, culture. Mm. So, you know, a, a really amazing digital story that we have is about Tanya and she's Inuit and she's actually half Inuit and half white. And so, um, first off, there's a really, because I'm Métis too, I understand this. Sometimes it's hard being in between spaces. You know, uh, those kind of in-between spaces are hard because sometimes you get rejected because you're not Indigenous enough or or you're too indigenous, you know, it's it's such a hard space. But anyway, so um, what Tanya talks about is revitalizing and reclaiming Inuit throat singing has been a really important part of her healing. And then also, you know, reclaiming her language. And, you know, there's such thing as um, cell memory. And so they say that, you know, for let's say 60 scoop survivors, which are indigenous children that were taken during from the 60s all the way up to the 80s um, and adopted out. And they were adopted out all over the world, all over Turtle Island. And, um, you know, when they go home or when they reconnect with their family or they see a tradition, it reverberates in their body. It's like there's they have cell memory of that. Mm. And what so, is scoop? Sorry, sorry, Shelley. I, I, that's the first time I've I've heard that. What is scoop? Scoop? Oh, did did I or did okay. I hear you correctly? Yes. Scoop survivor, like S C O O P. Yeah. So the '60s scoop survivors. There used to be this government program where they would take Indigenous children from their parents because you know they they saw their parents as being unfit, sure. and they adopted them out to settler families. Without mm. permission. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so this happened to a lot of children across Canada where they were just taken from their families. Their mother was given no reason and Jesus. or their family was given no reason and they were given up for adoption. And so wow. right now they're trying to a lot of 60 scoop survivors are getting settlements from the government for having been taken wow. from their families. Um, but what I'm saying about that is, even though we have been disconnected from our culture or our language or our land, our bodies remember. Mm. And so when you start to hear those ceremonies again, so for example, Tanya hearing Inuit throat singing and then revitalizing it and participating in it, that mm. is a very healing experience for her. And that's part of decolonization. Mm-hmm. Are there any, are there any, um, I was, uh, I was, I was in India four or five years ago, four or five years ago now, and um, Sanskrit is a language in India that is um, that you know a lot of like ancient scriptures are, are are written in, and and the the language kind of died in in India, and then in northern India in particular, when I was there, um, I was reading about a uh, a resurgence of of Sanskrit and how they were sort of introducing Sanskrit into schools in in northern India again and trying to like revive the language. Um, um, I'm wondering if there, I mean, it seems so, it seems like it's obvious to me that we, that there should be, but I'm not sure if there are programs in schools in school boards across Canada where there is, where there are, um, where there is indigenous language being, being, being talked and being, being taught to, to every, to everybody. You know, I mean, like in, like here, if you go to school, you learn French up until a certain, up until a certain uh, age. Like you have, it's just a part of the curriculum. Is that is that a program anywhere in Canada in schools? So there's a lot of Indigenous communities uh, that are self determining and they have their own language programs. And Onion Lake, where I live in Lloydminster, Onion Lake Cree Nation actually has an excellent Cree program in their schools for their children to cool. reclaim their language. Um, I think just out east recently, there was a bill passed where an Indigenous language has to be taught in the school curriculum now. Um, And in the Northwest Territories, which I'm familiar with because my family lives there, there's nine official different languages in the Northwest Territories. Um, And, you know, sometimes the funding isn't there to revive all Mm, of the languages, right? Um, But they do their best. And there's some really amazing knowledge keepers that... 
um, do teach the children. Uh, there's just like so many different languages. Sometimes it's really challenging to find traditional language speakers that can, can right. teach. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I mean, and I guess that, I guess when you say that there, it can be challenging to find traditional language speakers, I mean, I guess that plays into the whole history of, of Canada and that those languages were, were intentionally attempted to be er- eradicated basically. So, I mean, that, you know, plays into I, like this whole, the whole cycle of how, of how we kind of, we are where we are and it, and there, there is this intergenerational trauma where the language that has been ripped away, that is a part of how people feel and how people go about their day-to-day lives, how it can be challenging to, to get that back. Uh, I'm, uh, out of the, the research that you're doing, like how, how is it, how, or, or is it different? How is it different conducting the research that you do um, being a indigenous person yourself versus someone trying to do this research who is not? Like, is there, is there, is there, is there much difference there yeah, coming, so at, coming at research from that point of view? I, I mean, I absolutely believe that there is, um, you know, and even I've been coding the transcripts from the digital storytelling interviews that we've done with the participants. Yeah. And, you know, they, the participants said, you know, it's like I have an insider's perspective on what colonization has done to indigenous peoples. Um, and, you know, it's just like being part of the group and understanding the intergenerational trauma. You know, my family experienced the legacy of residential school too. And so um, Indigenous people are relationship-based. And that means that I am accountable to these Indigenous women for anything that I do or say about this research. And so if you talk about a non-Indigenous researcher going into Indigenous community and not having those relationships and not being accountable to the people that they're doing research with, ethically, that's a very uh, challenging thing. And then the intentions of my research come from my heart. And, Mm. you know, I really had to examine my heart before I started doing this research to see if I wanted to go on this journey. And so my intentions aren't based on how much grant money I can get or, you know, does this fulfill the requirement for a certain, you know, program? You know, it's really about what do I want to explore from my past and my history and what's happened to my family? Mm -hmm. And how do I want to co-create with these women uh, about their own health stories? And so that's Mm -hmm. the difference. In in terms of, um, Jerry, are you going to stay on that topic? Uh, Because I have another question. No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, in terms of in terms of your story as an indigenous woman, and to focus on the strength based narrative, um, what like what has it been about um, your life that has in- inspired you to you know do the work that you do today? I know that's a very broad question. Yeah. But- <laughs> Um, you know, I used to be really overweight and I really used to have, um, low self-esteem and it was really challenging for me to, um, have a voice and to advocate for myself and to really express what was happening with me in a healthy manner that wasn't, didn't have to do with alcohol or smoking or partying or any of that. And so, you know, part of my healing journey has been going to counseling, understanding myself better, um, really investing in my own well-being and, um, yeah, like a lot of self-care and a lot of self-love and translating that into helping others. You know, Mm -hmm. what can I do to help you to uh, have a voice and to believe in yourself and to advocate for your health needs? Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of this digital storytelling uh, is showing uh, medical professionals these stories so that they can have a better understanding of what's happening with Indigenous women's health. Mm-hmm. And so it's a form of advocacy. And so when I look back on my own journey, you know, I wanted someone to help me advocate for myself as well, to build up my confidence and to be able to go out there and stand up against oppression. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that answer because I... I you know, I'm, I'm really trying to be conscientious in the way that I, I, I frame things. And, you know, it's, this is a, 
a, a sense of an, an important conversation. And like my, my inclination was to ask about like, well, how has the social determinants of health negatively affected you? But, you know, in trying to step back from that and look more to the strength-based side of it, um, I really appreciate your answer and really appreciate the work that you've done and the challenges that you've overcome to get to where you are today. There, there's something that I want to ask, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how to, how to word it. I, I've been like, I've been kind of jumbling this in my head for, for a while now, but, um, there, so it, like it, it's, it's an obvious understatement to say that there's that, 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 um, that the indigenous population here in Canada has like faced incredible, uh, um, injustices and, and, there's within this conversation that we're having, there was a couple of things that you said, Taylor and, and Shelly, your responses to what Taylor said made me think about how like t- typically in the Western medical community, but we, we like, and, and we, we've seen this, we've talked about this on the show a number of times that it's, it's, it all comes down to like stats and numbers and, and statistics. And it's very scientific. Um, yet there's, there's, there seems to be, uh, a much more sort of nuanced layers in terms of like, of what, of of what healthcare means to, to the indigenous population. So like, like, for example, like if I went to the hospital right now, spirituality isn't something that like my fucking like family doctor is going to ask me about or like, like that's just not, that's just not in the air. Like that's nor not is something, it something that, that you necessarily would, would or nor, nor is it. Yeah, about, exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, so I'm wondering like, like how, how is, how is the care that, that indigenous folks need? Um, what are, what are the things that play into that, that, that me as like a, a, a white male who 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 hasn't lived that life might not be thinking about you know like like natural medicines or spirituality or or what have you like what are the things that that our western medical community is is sort of missing the mark with if that makes any fucking sense i have no idea if no, i'm totally really does. trying hard it there so you're talking about like you know this biomedical western viewpoint of health yeah. you know where it's focused on disease mm-hmm. and it's focused on um yeah just your body and that's it whereas indigenous people they view health as holistic and so that's mind, body, spirit. And it's really about keeping everything in balance. That's really what Indigenous health is about, keeping a balanced, holistic life. So we're talking about, you know, your physical body. How do you treat that? But also, you know, your mental well-being. You know, what are you doing for yourself today that's really uh, uh, putting yourself in a positive mindset? Are you connecting with nature? Have you gone outside today? That is literally one of the best things that you can do to improve your mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also spirituality, you know, it's complicated for indigenous people to explain to their medical doctor how important their ceremonies are. Right. And so, and if they've never attended a ceremony, how do they even get into it with them? Right. And that's not something usually that indigenous people want to divulge either, because, you know, it's sacred to indigenous people, their ceremonies. They don't want to talk about it openly. But for example, let's say um, you're at the hospital and indigenous people want to smudge, which is, you know, a traditional practice about doing prayers and and they use all different kinds of plants in order to do it. Um, a lot of hospitals don't want Indigenous people to do that. You know, even though it has been proven that it actually purifies the air. Mm. Um, because it is a spiritual practice for us. And and so trying to meld these two worldviews can be very challenging. It requires a lot of communication between both of us, between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people. There needs to be a real understanding of what it means to be healthy for Indigenous people as opposed to non-Indigenous people. Mm. And so what we're doing through the digital stories is talking about what is health and how do we um, attain good health. And it has to do with the land. Mm-hmm. So when you look at Dorothy's story, she talks about, you know, everything that you need to be healthy 
is on the land. So that includes your medicines, that includes your food, that includes physical activity. You know, she's going on a Trails of Our Ancestors canoe trip. It's 21 days and it involves 189 portages. Holy shit. How can you not be healthy after that? You know how strong you're going to be? You know, and then mentally doing that kind of a track. Look at you guys just said holy shit to that. It's like, what kind of mental toughness do you need to have in order to complete a an activity like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, you know, the actual process of aligning ourselves energetically and spiritually has to do with being on the land. Mm. So, you know, practicing traditional culture, getting out there and, and picking berries, especially in the summer, picking medicine. What does that do for your spirit to be on the land? Mm -hmm. So that's when I talk about, you know, holistic health, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. It's a connection to the land. It's a connection to community uh, and it's a connection to being able to be ourselves and decolonized and have self-determining practices, you know, right. where we get to decide this is the way we want to run our government. You don't run our government for us. Right, right. Yeah. Does this, does this, does this like divide between, between, and again, like trying to just figure out the way to word this because I, I don't quite know, but like, does this divide that seem seemingly exists between the medical community and and the indigenous population um, produce like a, a a sense of mistrust um, in the in the medical community. You know, like I, and I think that's something that that I that I've we've seen or or that we've heard, at, especially at, at at various like um, medical conferences and stuff that we've we've yeah. spoken to. But but maybe like, could you speak to that? Yeah. So there's systemic racism within the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. A lot of indigenous people don't want to go to their doctor. Because they're they're worried about, you know, the racist comments or the ways that they're going to be treated. Or maybe there's a language barrier as well. You know, in the Northwest Territories, they have to have interpreters on call all the time for the different languages that come in through the hospital. So, yeah. you know, maybe that's not a resource that's accessible in some of the communities. And so there's really poor um, language skills happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and when we talk about systemic barriers for indigenous people, it also is in, um, access to healthcare. You know, when you're living in the North, sometimes the only option of, of having a doctor is a fly in, fly out doctor that lands Mm. there for a day and sees as many patients as possible and has Mm. a really short appointment time. And then, you know, you don't even get to talk about all of the issues that you've had because you only have 10 minutes with that person. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you've been waiting two months to see a doctor. So it's also about like accessibility. It's about racism. Like, how are we going to be treated when we go and see the doctor? Is it going to be fair or is there going to be a lot of judgment and bias Mm -hmm. and stereotypes Mm -hmm. and prejudice? You know, and then the other thing about systemic barriers is that um, you get beaten down by the system. You know, there's so much oppression and you try so hard to fight it, but eventually it wears you down. And why should the onus always be on Indigenous people to advocate for ourselves? It's time for non-Indigenous people and medical professionals to become better allies and to take the time to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. We were we were talking, I can't remember exactly, I mean, it was, we, were, we were recording in our in our like office studio. So it seems like a lifetime ago Jesus, when we were was, doing that in um, real life. Oh my God. Yeah. In real life. We were in the same room <laughs> together. Different lifetime. Um, and I can't remember who we were talking with. And I can't remember if it came up at the end of the podcast or if we were talking about it afterwards, but we were talking with a young woman and her education was, um, centered around doing research, um, on how, um, intersectionality, can be brought into um, like decision making for like healthcare policy, and um, and and just it just popped into my head when you were speaking a few minutes ago about how how you know you have you have everybody of all different walks of life coming into a hospital. You have different people from different um, racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, family backgrounds, socioeconomic background, like just everything under the sun you can ever possibly imagine. And, and the healthcare system, and I understand the healthcare system is like ultra complicated and there is a, there is a thousand, a thousand, a million moving parts to it, but that you come in, like, it's not, it's not just, Hey, what's your family history? And you know, like what's the genetic 
history of your family. But also it's like, and these are uncomfortable, these are uncomfortable things for people to divulge, but it's like, where do you live? Who do you, who do you live with? Who do you live around? What's your, what's your, what's your, what's your, the economic situation? What is the educational situation? Like there's, there are this, like this crazy number of factors in, in that relate to how you are doing physically and, and mentally. And there just is, and I remember having that conversation and being like, wow, that sounds so complicated that I can't wrap my head around it. But mm. I mean, there, there are just so many factors involved. And I, and I think the medical system just takes into account so few of them, like a, like a hand, like a handful out of, out of, I don't know how many. And just thinking of how like I get this sort of um I have this sort of like uh uto- utopian idea in my head of like a medical system that takes into it that can take into account all these different things when they're seeing people so when they're seeing indigenous people like a understanding I'm speaking to somebody who comes from a background where spirituality is is involved I'm coming from a back I'm I'm speaking to somebody who comes from a background um, with all of these things that that come with it, and the history of, of of Indigenous people in Canada, and being able to be sensitive to that, and then ask questions, ask questions that that allow them to to glean more information about how they need, and kind of to your to what you were talking about earlier, Jerry, of how to care, how to provide individualized care for that person that mm-hmm. is that is um, that's that's a little bit more robust than the, than the, um, the like standardized care. That, you mean how to build a healthcare need. system that's not a factory or machine and it's actually yeah. patient yeah. centric. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, it, it's, um, that was, that conversation what? was with, uh, uh, Katie from the that's episode right. we did on OCD. We, it was OCD. after the recording. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I, I mean, what you're talking about right now is cultural safety and, um, you know, there's a lot of work being done on anti-racism within medical uh, schools. And so that's really important work. You know, we're teaching, they're teaching uh, medical students uh, this kind of stuff, you know, and it's part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's calls to action is to include Indigenous healing practices in uh, medical training. And so this work is being done, uh, you know, but again, you know, it's a giant system and Mm. these kind of changes take a long time, but I'm really hopeful. Uh, There's some amazing medical residents that are going to come out of um, anti-racism workshops, knowing a little bit more about Indigenous people's health. And part of the reason that I did these digital stories is, is to show them to medical professionals and to open up a dialogue and a space of discussion about these issues you know, what is intergenerational trauma? What does it look like? How do you heal on the land? How important mm. is cultural revitalization? Why do we smudge in a hospital? You know, like all of these are really important factors mm-hmm. to improving our Indigenous people's health in Canada. So, um, you know, it takes a long time to implement these changes, but I am hopeful. There's a lot of really amazing researchers that I work with that uh, are in charge of things like this. Mm-hmm. I'm really, I'm really, I'm, I really appreciate, I really appreciate <laughs> the positive, the, the, the positive angle because I feel, I feel like there is, I mean, it's like, it's like watching the news. It's, it's, it's 98% uh, mm-hmm. bad news. And then it's like, Hey, and now here's a squirrel that can water ski, <laughs> like, you know, like just to lighten the mood before we send you mm-hmm. off on your night. And, uh, and, and it is, it is really refreshing to hear, to hear it from like this really positive, you know, there is work being done. I'm like, I'm hopeful. And, and that's really nice to hear. I mean, I'll, I'll, albeit that there is a ton of, a ton of bad, bad things and, and bad habits and bad policies that need to be, um, that need to be looked at. Um, the positive, the positive aspect is really, is really great. Um, Shelly, uh, can you, can you let our listeners know, um, you, you, you've, you've, you've referred to, uh, uh, a few of the digital storytelling, um, stories that, that you've collected over, over time. Is this, is this, are these resources that people can actually, uh, kind of dig into and read for themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So they're on my website. It's womanwarriors.club, C-L-U-B. 
Uh, they're all there. You can watch all of them. And there's newsletters that are about all of uh, Indigenous women's health. And that will direct you to the digital stories. And there's all, it's all free, all free resources for everybody Amazing. to check out. Amazing. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day today to, uh, to chat with us and to, to guide the three of us just a little further down on this journey of, of learning uh, a, a lot of really important things that, that, uh, that exist. Learning within... and unlearning. Learning and unlearning. <laughs> That's right, Brian. Yeah, thank you. I just, uh, yeah, thank I, you so much. I really appreciate all the work that you guys are doing, and it's such an honor to be on this podcast and it's such an honor to be your first Métis guest. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Shelly. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Shelly. Yeah, uh, and thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, like always, we'll, we'll be back next week with another great conversation. And in the meantime, if you want to support the podcast so that more people can hear these important conversations, you can do two things. You can follow us on Spotify uh, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review and hit the subscribe button. Because again, doing those things uh, just invites our podcast to sit somewhere on some sort of list that's higher up. And the higher we are on the list, the more people listen. I don't know how it works. It's but a whole thing. It's a whole thing. You know, it's it's got... There's an algorithm, I think, somewhere in there. Yeah, there's math. It's just yeah. really important. It's, yeah, it's just it's too much. So uh, do those things, but you can also support the podcast um, with your with your hard earned dollars, and that's that's also a big way to to uh, support us, so we can continue to have these conversations. Right, Taylor? Go to Patreon.com/sickboy. Um, we are we are loving our Patreon community. You guys. Uh, do a ton uh, uh do a ton for us especially in these times where um where we can't do a lot of the things that we that we used to do like go on the road and um and do live shows which and i handshake and handshake and handshake high five all those spit things. into the crowd there's just so many <laughs> right, things that yeah. we're not allowed to do anymore yeah, spitting um, into the crowd was a big it was a big part of our live show yeah. it was we had a whole we had a whole splash section the first two rows yeah anyway can't do that anymore but uh if you want to help us out on on patreon we love every single one of you who uh who who helps uh helps us out with your like jeremy said with your hard-earned bucks patreon.com slash sick boy and i'm gonna toss away my uh my regular last section that i do here because i want to tell you guys a little bit about uh the patreon hangout that we had last night just really quick story um, with our patrons last night. Taylor and Jeremy unfortunately couldn't make our weekly hangout call. But, oh, Jeremy couldn't um, do it either. I was uh, I was able to spend um, a couple hours hanging out with um, a majority of the audience was was uh, were females, and we were talking about um, folks with vaginas and menstruation. And we had this amazing conversation where everybody went into detail explaining. They're telling their story, sharing stories of their first periods. Whoa. And I asked, um, I was asking because I was like, as a guy, like I've never thought of, you know, the challenge of what it would be like to, you know, experience your, your first period. And, um, somebody, I, I think it was, uh, Sadie, one of our, our patrons said, Brian, let me put it to you like this. Imagine that for the first 10 years of your life, you were never able to take a shit. And oh then one day oh, wow. you just Lord. all of a sudden took a poop and, and Lauren jumped in and was like, and imagine that poop was the, the biggest poop you ever were going to take <laughs> wow. in your entire life Brian. too. This is a, and imagine just being, this is a lane that you decided just to go all down. of a sudden realizing that that was a thing. I just want to let everybody you know that that and somebody was told unprompted. told you that eventually you were You're gonna take going a poop, but you had never you never thought of what that would actually be like. <laughs> Sorry, Brian, could you, you explain one. that one more time? I didn't yeah, quite no, get the good. and it's like the quite... biggest firmest oh. poop yeah, okay, you were okay, ever okay, gonna okay, take okay, in your time. Okay, okay. But anyway, so it my was niece, really my niece my niece had her first period the other day and and I cried. It was it's yeah, really it was really it sweet. It is beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. It was a really sweet thing. I wish I could have hugged her, but I couldn't. And, um, and yeah, anyway, we had a really great conversation about periods and it was amazing. I love so that Shelley, you guys are I, talking I know, about I, this. Like, I, I love it. It's so amazing. But there's this woman, her, she's an indigenous uh, yoga instructor and she does all of this amazing work. It's called Wild Womb. And she oh, talks oh, about all okay. of this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. I'm looking yeah, this up. Yeah, you guys should totally uh, connect with her, her yeah. because, you know, if you're open to talking about it, I think it's so important that men talk about this as well. Yeah. And like, Menstruation totally. is one of our favorite topics on the and, podcast. And you know what? And it and is, it, this it, is it so is. important because, and because like, we learn so much this, every time. 
it's too bad this is at the end of the, the podcast and maybe some people have turned it off by now but <laughs> but uh there was uh there was a couple other guys on uh including uh mark buckle shout out to buckle um and and he mark and buckle. i were kind of like this is this is so incredibly important that we're hearing this because Just a, a lot of the stories that the um people were sharing were about how challenging so a couple of them grew up in in uh, single family homes and they uh, live with their dads and they had their periods with with um their dads in the house and they had to go to them and talk about it and like the, it's really it's really challenging and a lot of them you know tried to hide it from them and so if we normalize this and talk about it more this is hopefully in the future new, it will be a, a whole a whole new podcast brian yeah but, <laughs> although, but although anyway i just want to share to with you guys back, I think it's really where important. this all came from was it was all all due to our Patreon hangout. So thank you to our patrons. <laughs> and and uh, Shelly, I just So wanna, if you're a guy a out job. there and you know nothing yeah, about menstruation yeah. and you want to learn join, more, join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Uh, is it Joss Frank? Is that who you yes, were referring to, Shelly? Yeah, her website is Wild Womb. Yeah, wildwomb.space. And I'm you guys should right totally now. have her because if you want to talk about yeah. uh, like the power of wombs, yeah. she's your woman. And also she does like trauma-informed yoga. So that's cool. for women who cool. have had physical or mental abuse and they can't be present in their bodies. Mm-hmm. She teaches them yoga so that they can like reconnect with themselves. Cool. cool. Very cool. cool. Yeah, I'm all about this. This is great. We're all yeah. yoga awesome. teachers. I don't know if you know. If you, if you, What's your yoga? All of you? Yeah. yeah. All three of us. Oh. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Well, she... It's all part of our life. This, 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 this will be right up our alley. This, mm-hmm. yeah. this is great. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks again, Shelly. Uh, it was a huge pleasure. And yeah. um, and also thanks to Donovan, the CPAP Morgan, for the amazing sound design on the show. Uh, thanks to our uh, uh, co-producer, Lauren Sankey. And thanks to our manager, Jeff Lonis. Uh, we love all you guys. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And this is Sickle. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.